Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. Weeks of camp canceled, weddings postponed, long-planned vacations scuttled. That's been summer, as I've experienced it and heard about it from friends and colleagues. The Bay Area is finally trying to have a normal summer, and it's not quite working out as planned. New variants have continued to emerge and flourish, driven by evolutionary pressure. And we're in the trans-pandemic mode, not quite like we were in 2020, but still living unlike any time before March of that year. We're joined by two of our regular COVID advisors today to talk about the evolving situation and what to expect for the coming fall and winter. That's coming up next after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. You know what this show is. We're still in the coronavirus pandemic. People are still getting sick. And even now, in a relatively calm part of the summer, 300 COVID deaths are still being reported each day. It's a far cry from the worst days of the pandemic. But that's part of what makes this moment so confusing. It's not over, but increasingly, employers, families, airlines, and it seems like everyone outside the Bay Area is starting to treat covid like any other respiratory virus. So we bring you two expert voices direct from UCSF and Stanford. Give us a call with your questions about this period, and we'll put them to our guests. We're at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can get in touch on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at KQED Forum, or you can email forum at kqed.org. Welcome our guests. We're joined first by Dr. Bob Wachter, professor and chair of the Department of Medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. Welcome back to the show, Dr. Wachter. Thank you, Alexis. Good to be here. And we're joined by Dr. Bonnie Maldonado, professor of pediatrics and of epidemiology and population health chief in the Division of Pediatric Infectious Diseases at Stanford University School of Medicine. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Maldonado. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, so let's start out with you, Dr. Walker. Let's kind of flash back to a year or two years ago. From your perspective, what hasn't changed about SARS-CoV-2, even as we've learned about and, and lived with this virus? Well, almost hard to think of what hasn't changed over the last couple of years. I you know, what hasn't changed is we've never seen anything quite like this virus before. Everyone is at some level of risk. Everybody has to do this uh, three-dimensional chess game pretty much every day to try to figure out what's safe to do, what's not safe to do. It's causing massive uh, disruption of our society and a lot of anxiety. So that hasn't changed, but I'm sure we'll get into in great detail a lot of the aspects of the virus have changed in terms of how infectious it is, how our immunity is working against it, and how severe it is. So I think it's very hard for people to process all of this, in part because we came to some of these understandings kind of the hard way. And once you've come to them, it's hard to get uh, to give them up as the facts change on the ground. And a lot of the facts have changed. 
And Dr. Maldonado, how about you? Same same kind of question. Are there bedrock things about this virus that still remain true, even given you know how much evolutionary change it's undergone and all of the treatments and, and vaccines we've developed? things are still absolutely true. One is this is still a public health emergency. As you know, uh, the Biden administration just uh, decided to extend our public health emergency that it started in January 2020, which is interesting. It started the emergency very early. That situation is not different. It is still a very deadly disease when you compare it to any other circulating viral illness that we see um, today. So that part hasn't changed, uh, whether it's gotten better or worse, it's still worse than, say, our annual influenza epidemic. So uh, still a force to be dealt with. Unfortunately, what has changed, I know we'll get more into this, is our perception. And again, we talk about this all the time, the risk perception has changed, um, but it's still quite uh, quite a force to be dealt with. Hmm. Do you think it's changed too much that people are now underestimating the risk from COVID? Uh, well, I, you know, I think, I think the public is, uh, has in many ways, communication has, has, and hasn't worked. And where it has worked is people are really very good at, a, at it, understanding day to day, what, what, as you heard the three dimensional chess game, you have to maneuver every morning. Um, but I think in doing that, we tend to feel more comfortable about the risks that we might face. And I think for those of us in the healthcare setting where we see, these patients face-to-face where we talk to their families, where we deal with the long COVID that's going on. Um, nothing's changed for us. I, I think in, in many ways it's gotten worse for us, not personally, well, personally as well, but we're still seeing the impacts. And I think people in the in the community are not seeing those same heavy impacts that we saw before vaccinations, et cetera. Um, and so I think that's the problem is that we've gotten used, to, we, we're very good at getting used to lots of, things that we feel like we can't control. And that's the problem. We think we can't control this and we really can if we need to keep it, I wouldn't say top of mind or front of mind, but at least high on your list of things you should do to keep yourself and your loved ones healthy. Yeah. Well, and it's so difficult because, you know, even Dr. Fauci yesterday said we should not let it disrupt our lives, but we could not deny that it is a reality that we need to deal with, which is kind of interesting because if in order to deal with that reality, you kind of need to disrupt your life a little bit. Um, yeah, but, but think about it this way, though. And um, we talk, I say this all the time as a pediatrician, we do a lot, and I'm sure uh, Dr. Wachter does as well. We do a lot of preventive maintenance, healthcare maintenance. So we always put our seatbelts on, or at least I hope most of us do. We put helmets on, we stop at stop signs. I mean, we do lots of things that you could say, well, that's disrupting my everyday life, but it really isn't. It becomes part of your everyday life. And I think that's the secret here. What can we do? Small things that we can do that can keep us safe and not really interfere with our ability. We all go out. I mean, we travel, go to dinner, go to events. And, uh, you know, I think we can still do all of those things with some Yeah, mitigation. I want to bring in some callers uh, early because I know this is kind of one of these moments in this pandemic where there's these kind of specific situations that people are unsure of of what to do. Uh, Karen in Oakland, welcome to the show. Hi. I wanted to say that uh, I tested positive on June 30th. I had about five days of mild cold symptoms. I've been fine ever since. I am still testing positive 13 days later. And I'm wondering, because I've read up, I'm supposed, I'm okay to go out with a tight-fitting mask, wouldn't want to go visit a grandma if I had one. 
which unfortunately I don't. And um, I don't. I basically have not been socializing, um, except with the person who I'm pretty sure I got it from uh, for the first time yesterday. So my question is this. It sounds like if you get a negative test, you know you're not contagious anymore. If you have, still have a positive test this late, you're probably not contagious, but you don't know for sure. I'm wondering if that's still the thought. And also, I'm wondering, what is the longest you have heard that someone's still testing positive? Thank you. Uh, Dr. Wachter, let's bring that to you. And I'm going to say that's testing positive uh, on an antigen test. I, yeah, I'm assuming it's a rapid test. I, yeah. Uh, you can have her on as a third guest. She's got it. Uh, that it, you know, that while the antigen test, one of the kind of few happy coincidences of of the pandemic, has been that the antigen test trigger for positivity is at about the same level as the amount of virus you need to be infectious. And so, um, you know, in the beginning, people looked at the antigen test. Well, it's not as good as the PCR. It turns out to be quite useful in many ways, more useful than the PCR because it turns positive at about the time you've built up enough virus to infect someone else and it turns negative when you no longer have enough virus to infect someone else, whereas the PCR may stay positive for a while. I think the average day to turn negative these days is seven or eight. So most people are still positive on day five. A few people will still be positive on day 10. It's a little getting to be a little unusual to be still positive on day 13, but still not at all unheard of. And I think the way that was framed was exactly right. We, we just don't know. If you're still positive on day 13, the safest thing to do is, is assume that you are still very, very low-level positive. And if you're out wearing a mask, that's fine. Your, your, your level of virus must have gone down tremendously. I haven't heard of anybody who's not already tremendously immunocompromised who has stayed positive for more than about 15 or 20 days. Bonnie might have, but it's a very unusual. Once you get out to day 13, people are getting frustrated, feeling like is this ever going to turn. And usually you'll start seeing it taking longer for the line to turn positive, the line to be less bright. And by day 14 or 15, it'll turn, turn negative. But I think the strategy is still be a little careful if you're positive, even though the CDC says you're good to go. If you're testing positive, there's still a possibility you are still infectious and particularly around vulnerable people, I'd be careful. Yeah. You know, uh, Dr. Wachter, when you uh, tweeted about the show, a one of your followers responded to, to talk about the Paxlovid rebound. Um, and this is something that, you know, we've experienced he, here on the show, uh, and I've heard about it among friends as well, where it's just, you know, somebody takes Paxlovid, it seems to work quite well, and then they get a rebound, they end up testing positive, like, for a very long time after uh, after the virus comes back. What's your current approach to Paxlovid? How are you thinking about those rebounds, and 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 are you still prescribing it? So the answer is yes, I'm still prescribing it. Yes, I think it's a useful drug. I'm doing a lot of head scratching. Bonnie and I were talking about this before the show started, because the the research that both came out of the original clinical trial for Paxlovid and then a subsequent study that I think was out of Mayo Clinic said that this happens in two percent of people. Uh, that is a, I can't believe my eyes because <laughs> the yeah. number of people I know who have had it. Yeah, and, exactly. And said, I know you've had some, some of your folks have had it. My wife had it. Fauci had it. Uh, Peter Hotez, another uh, uh, virology expert has had it. It seems like it's all over the place. I've spoken to the White House folks. They think it's 10 or so percent of people will have it. What it is, is you test positive. You start on this antiviral drug Paxlovid. You take it for five days. You turn negative. You feel better. And then sometime a few days later, you often start feeling crummy again and you test positive again. The good news and the good news about it is in pretty much every case I've heard of, 
it's it's self-limited. It only lasts for four, five, six days. I've not heard of a severe rebound case, meaning that someone got so sick on that rebound that they needed to go to the hospital. Uh, uh, you are infectious during the rebound. I know. I definitely know of cases where people have infected other folks during the rebound, so you have to go back into isolation. Why it's happening, nobody knows exactly. There are some theories about it, but nobody knows exactly uh, how to prevent it. Nobody knows that either. I think most of us think that if the original course was not five days by seven days or 10 days, that might work better and prevent it, although that hasn't been tested. And is it bad enough to not use the drug? I still think the, the best clinical trial of the drug said it lowered the hospitalization rate among high-risk people by 90%. So for someone who's at higher risk, I would definitely use it. I'm a little bit on the fence for a fully vaccinated, boosted person who, let's say, is younger than about 60. I pro probably wouldn't. I'm 64. If I got COVID today, I probably would. Now, one last point is my wife had it and developed, and developed long COVID. She still has not terrible, but still has symptoms three months out. And I can't help but think maybe that had something to do with it. That's an anecdote. We tend not to like to think in anecdotes. But, you know, we worry that is the rebound then associated with sort of prolonged symptoms. We don't know the answer to that. But long answer to saying I think I'd still use it, but I'm a little bit more concerned about it than I was before. That's exactly the answer I wanted. Thank you, Dr. Wachter. Appreciate that. We're talking about the latest in the COVID pandemic with Dr. Bob Wachter from UCSF and Dr. Bonnie Maldonado from Stanford University School of Medicine. We're going to be talking about kids and COVID after the break. Stay tuned for more. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the latest in the COVID pandemic. We're joined by Dr. Bob Wachter, professor and chair of the Department of Medicine at UCSF, a regular here on the show, as well as Dr. Bonnie Maldonado, professor of pediatrics and of epidemiology and the population health chief in the Division of Pediatric Infectious Diseases at Stanford University School of Medicine. Dr. Maldonado, how often do you say your entire title there? It's <laughs> oh, sorry about that. Yeah, it's I an impressive title. It's a very impressive title. I'm an infectious disease epidemiologist. That's the the easy way to perfect. So, uh, something I never thought uh, we'd you know be talking about on the radio. Certainly, yeah. uh, three years ago. <laughs> uh, so we would love to hear your questions about COVID nineteen in light, particularly of the new variants and kind of changes that we all see around us in in our behaviors and our risk perception and tolerance. You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. 
Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, it's KQED Forum, and the email is forum at kqed.org. Um, Dr. Maldonado, I wanted to basically do a, a reset about kids and COVID. There were so many questions at the beginning. Could kids get really sick? Could they transmit the infection? Would they be subject to long COVID? What about fact? There were so many questions. So kind of reset us. What do we know now about kids and COVID that maybe we didn't when we began this thing? Yeah, that's a really great um, opportunity, actually, for me to to set some of that straight. So, absolutely, I you you do recall, as you said, that uh, you know we heard initially children don't get infected. Uh, that's not true. Uh, they don't get sick. That's also not true. And um, they can't transmit to others. That's also not true. So I actually have, as uh, Bob does as well, we check in every morning with our hospital data and we have admissions every single day and have almost every single day since the beginning of the pandemic had children admitted to our hospital, not just with COVID, but for COVID. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it's a serious disease. Again, as I mentioned earlier, we're seeing this disease in kids every single day and not just runny noses and coughs. And that is, by the way, not the goal of prevention to prevent coughs and runny noses. That's you know, gonna, that's, we think is gonna just, uh, that would be the preferred way that this virus could present. Unfortunately, what we're seeing in kids is um, over um, uh, 13 million cases with tens of thousands of hospitalizations since the beginning of the pandemic, just in the United States, and um, over 1,500 children who have died. Now, I think one of the things that we need to level set here is that people say, well, but, you know, that does that pales in comparison to deaths in adults. But one of the things that I've been doing throughout my career is working on vaccine preventable diseases in kids. And we see that uh, preventable diseases um, in children can actually uh, uh, kill them if they're if children are not protected. And um, and and we also know that children aren't supposed to die. Right. We would prefer children to live full adult lives. Uh, this virus is in the top five causes of death right now um, in the United States for every single age group under 18. So when you break down the cases, um, so it may be that the numbers look small, but they are the most preventable causes of death that we have right now in children. And uh, that aside, when you look at hospitalizations, um, again, it's it's still a risk uh, for children to be hospitalized, to have severe symptoms and to get long covid um, at, at a risk of about maybe one to three percent or so. So it's still a low risk, but we have no way of predicting which child. So hmm. over That's what six can ask yeah. are there particular oh. risk factors that you're looking for? Has it been well, yeah, absolutely. So the, the risk there are. So let me just say that sick over 60% of kids who are hospitalized with disease, so not just coming in and asymptomatically being found to be infected when they get hospitalized, 60% of children um, to have no underlying risk factors for their COVID. And the, uh, but the risk factors are things that are very prevalent, like obesity, mm-hmm. asthma, diabetes. Those are the three major uh, underlying conditions that are associated with severe infection in children, very similar to what we see in adults. So that's actually fairly, unfortunately, fairly prevalent in our population. So yeah, you're right. It's it's kind of like a needle in a haystack. We really mm. don't know how to find those children or adults, by the way. And there was a study done actually in collaboration with UCSF and Stanford and other institutions looking at risk factors for severe disease. We would love to know how to screen out people who might be at risk. And there are some signals, but they're quite complicated blood tests that would need to be done on a number of people just to predict who is at highest risk. And obviously we know 
people with underlying conditions are at risk for progression and those people know who they are. But among that vast number of people uh, who don't have underlying conditions, and uh, that's over 200 million people in this country, mm. uh, we just don't know how to pinpoint. Um, we have a lot of different kinds of questions coming in from our listeners, and I want to kind of go, uh, maybe not exactly lightning style, but I do want to run through as many of them as we can, just because it does feel like there's a moment where people's questions are getting more and more specific. Um, Dr. Wachter, uh, Noel tweets, I was holding out for the new vaccines in the fall. I'm a healthy 57-year-old and work at home and don't go out that much. From what I've recently heard, I should get that second booster now? Yes, I, I, I think so. The, the, the data on the value of the second booster is more and more persuasive. A recent study showed that the mortality rate was one-fourth if you've gotten the second booster versus the first. I think you start hearing a White House mantra that says if you've not gotten a shot in 2022, you should, meaning that that first booster was incredibly valuable and you definitely needed to get the first one. One, uh, but if you got it more than six months ago, its efficacy has waned, particularly in the face of the new variant that's that evades uh, immunity better. So I would get it. I'm recommending that people get it. I think the White House is about to, and and, and probably we have to wait for the FDA and CDC to weigh in. But they're about to uh, lower the age limit and basically take the age limit away and say that basically everybody will be eligible for the second booster. I think the concern that uh, should I not get that now because I'm going to want to get the better rejiggered booster in the fall. First of all, we're not sure how much better the rejiggered booster will be in the fall. And second of all, I can't see a circumstance where you get boosted this week with booster number two and somehow you're not then able to get a better booster that comes out in November. I think that it's uh, that's not a reason not to get it. So yeah. I think for and anybody fact, over yeah. 50, definitely get it. Uh, Dr. Ashish Jha, who's now coordinating the uh, coronavirus effort for the Biden administration, did say just yesterday that getting a booster dose now would, quote, not preclude people from getting another booster reformulated yep. to combat Omicron and its subvariants in the fall. So you can put that one to rest. You can get the booster. You'll still be able to get uh, the future rejiggered one, which, as you say, there's all these questions about how much of it they'll be available as well as uh, how much better it'll actually be. Um here is a slightly more uh, complicated question. Um, a listener writes, people tell older adults to be more careful, but older is a wide range. I'm 71 with no comorbidities, with trips planned to Morocco and Italy in the fall. Do I go? And uh, Dr. Watcher, we'll take this one to you again. Uh, yes, I, I, I think that this virus is going to be with us for the foreseeable future. I think limiting your life in terms of not traveling I don't think makes any sense. There's, if people talk about going to various places where the prevalence is less than it is in California. So I think traveling is fine. I think that wherever you are, whether it's in San Francisco or in your Mor you're in Morocco, being in a crowded indoor space where there's a lot of virus around, you should wear a good mask. When you can eat outside rather than inside, you should. Uh, but I thought, you know, Traveling is not the main risk. It really is how much virus is there in the community. And there's really no place you can go where you can't keep yourself safe if you're vaccinated, boosted, and be careful when you're in crowded indoor spaces. Yeah. Dr. Maldonado, this one's coming to you. Another listener tweets, what's the latest research on COVID potentially causing type 1 diabetes? My son has type 1 diabetes, and I'm no longer worried about him getting super sick from COVID. But now I am worried about his sisters getting COVID and developing type 1 as a result. 
Yeah, so there has been what we call an association. We don't know if it's a causation. So uh, very uh, early on in the pandemic, I think uh, it was late 2020, when my colleagues who are endocrinologists and take care of children with diabetes noticed that uh, they were seeing familiar uh, families with uh, with cases of type 1 diabetes showing up. Now, we know that type 1 diabetes in general can be associated with a number of underlying genetic factors, including... Uh, viral triggers. So we've, you know, taken care of many children who present with a viral infection before the pandemic. And then they, that seems to trigger some underlying risk for type one. So it, it can happen with any virus, not just COVID. Uh, But somehow we have seen that uh, type one diabetes cases have doubled uh, diagnosed. The diagnosis of, of type one has doubled in children since the beginning of the pandemic. Now, we don't know if it's a cause or a trigger, but um, I do think that they, there could be other reasons. For example, um, uh, there may be other environmental factors, but yes, there's an association. Um, I think uh, whether or not uh, your um, caller's daughter is at risk um, is unknown, but I think having her vaccinated is really a good way to, and again, and, and taking normal precautions like you heard us talk about earlier, when you're out and about in public is still a good, a good idea. In fact, it's probably a better idea now, given these um, highly, highly transmissible new variants. Yeah. Let's bring in Elizabeth in Concord. Welcome, Elizabeth. Hi, thanks. Um, I have a quick question. I had COVID on June 14th and I have it again now. Mm. Um, we just yeah, got back from traveling over. Yeah, we just got back from traveling overseas, and I do have um, underlying issues, so I was giving the ARV Paxlovid, and I'm just wondering if taking the ARVs um, prevented me from developing antibodies, which is why I've gotten it again so quickly, or if it's another variant, possibly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Dr. Walter, let's take this one to you. I mean, I think the the variant explanation is at least a possibility, right? Because the whole point of this new BA5 subvariant is that it does have these immune escape properties. Yeah, correct. So, so I mean, first of all, I assume that is correct, that it's a reinfection. You'll, you'll hear periodically about people saying, I'm sure I had a reinfection where it actually is that first infection that is rebounding. And there is a phenomenon of rebound, even the absence of packs of it. Some people get worse. Mm. And, and of course, your PCR can stay positive for, for a number of weeks. So, I'm going to assume that this actually is a new infection, but it's possible when you hear about it a month later, it may not be. Yes, we are seeing reinfections, not a ton, but we are seeing reinfections as soon as a month or two later. If you had BA2 a month ago and now you're exposed to BA5, your protection is not as good as what we used to think. We used to think you're bulletproof. You got it. You're, you know, you got the... You got COVID, you're good for at least three or four or five months, no longer true. Uh, Did the Paxlovid have anything to do with that? I highly doubt that. I think probably, you know, what happens is people get an infection, get exposed to the new virus, and sometimes get an infection and let their guard down because they believe what what used to be true, which is you've had an infection, particularly if you're also vaccinated, you have COVID superpowers, don't worry about it. And it's, you can be really, you know, not throw caution to the wind for several months. Unfortunately, that's no longer true. Mm-hmm. We're talking about the latest in the COVID pandemic with Dr. Bob Wachter, professor and chair of the Department of Medicine at the University of California, San Francisco, and Dr. Bonnie Maldonado, professor of pediatrics and an infectious disease epidemiologist at Stanford University School of Medicine. We've got a question from Kenny. 
How about those of us who are immunocompromised? I have an autoimmune disease treated with immunosuppressive therapies. Currently, my wife and I are struggling to figure out whether or not our child can attend kindergarten. My doctors tell me that me and my family should avoid indoor situations where masks are not required. We are stuck weighing the risks of my child transmitting a COVID-19 infection to me, which would likely result in additional disabilities from long COVID or death versus the social, emotional, developmental loss for our kiddo on the spectrum. It doesn't make sense that we are risking everyone's health and excluding people from society because some are uncomfortable wearing masks. Uh, Dr. Maldonado, how would you answer this question? Well, that's the age-old public uh, health question, and I'm really sorry to hear that um, people are still feeling uncomfortable. And I agree that, you know, we try to make sure that our policies um, are not so impactful that they inhibit daily activities, but that they help pr protect our colleagues and our community members. Uh, so we do want people to be aware that the person next to you may actually uh, require a mask. And we want, we're actually in the point now where we're asking people not to be uh, judgmental about others who choose to continue to wear masks, which actually would be advised in this uh, next little mini wave that we're experiencing now. But regarding the immunocompromised, I'm a little concerned. And again, I'm not trying to make any specific recommendations to a patient, but we do have a monoclonal antibody combination uh, produced called Evusheld. And um, it is available in for certainly in the Bay Area. We know there's plenty of supply and it's available for people who have underlying specific immune conditions that don't allow them to make a good antibody response or whether they're vaccinated or not, or for people who can't get vaccinated, which is less common. But that uh, antibody combination is extremely effective at protecting people. Um, it's, a, it's an injection that they can get once every six months or so, and that can be highly protective. So on top of mitigation, I do think people should consult their providers. And if their providers are not aware of this Evusheld, um, they should um, ask their provider to seek counsel from say a public health agency or a specialist who does know this, because this is highly efficient in protecting people and being able to let them and their families go out and live your lives. And having said that, I think what Bob said earlier about uh, making sure you do avoid very high risk places is uh, is good uh, advice, but going to school certainly should not be um, prevented for any child. We we don't think that, that we've never, I personally, since June of 2020, through my uh, association with the American Academy of Pediatrics, we've, we've put out a statement, which we've never changed, saying that children should be allowed to go to school, but they should be, there should be mitigations, meaning masking, um, if necessary, and vaccination for sure, and good ventilation. Those things can still help uh, them live a, a good life. Yeah. I'm really surprised that ventilation in, in schools never got the sort of societal and political support that I thought it, it, it might. It makes so much sense. Um, well, you know, we're, we're dealing with resource issues, right? I mean, that's one of the other underlying uh, issues that we found that got peeled back with the pandemic. And that is that our resources are so variable across school districts, across counties and states. Uh, but, you know, you can actually make a very easy ventilation system and many to districts unfortunately had to jerry-rig those, but they are pretty effective. If you can filter the air in a classroom or, or a room, you can actually do a good job of reducing mm -hmm. risk of transmission. Yeah. A uh, couple of uh, just comments. Uh, Morgan writes, COVID is not a TV series that we can just get tired of. The history of pandemic shows these things go on, sometimes for decades. Why are we pretending that it's just going to go away if we maintain this attitude of sometimes mass and sometimes not? We are a short attention span society, and we are not taking 
a long view. We also uh, have a quick question here. How safe is swimming in an outdoor public pool? Trying to stay away from people, but having to pass them in the lane. I understand COVID can't be transferred in the water, but wondering what you think. I'm fully vaccinated and double boosted, but that was now three months ago. Dr. Walker? I'm pretty sure it's totally safe. Yeah, I I, I did not heard of a case transmitted that way, and I wouldn't worry about that at all. Yeah, that seems like one of the best (laughs) forms of exercise or, or activities in general that you could be doing right now. Um, we also have another comment, uh, from Sasha says, you know, I just got over COVID and think I got it either outdoors at a farmer's market or indoors masked with a K94 while I was attended by an unmasked store clerk. Otherwise I'm constantly masked around others and hadn't been in contact with others unmasked outside my family. Do you think there's more outdoor transmissibility with BA5? No question. This virus is, uh, well, so it, it, we know that the, uh, what we call the R, used to call it the R naught, it's the RT, so the immediate reproductive number, the ability to infect others. The original virus was probably around the order of one to two. Uh, this virus, uh, the BA4 and 5 now, uh, BA5 now being dominant in California and the rest of the U.S., is at a rate of about three to four. So this virus can really infect almost twice as many people as the original virus did. And as you heard earlier, the immune evasion, it's not only a little, it's more transmissible, but also can escape prior immunity. So um, I do think that um, it is, um, uh, it is, it could be, uh, you know, acquired at a farmer's market if you're around a lot of people. We're talking about the latest in the COVID pandemic with Dr. Bonnie Maldonado of Stanford University School of Medicine and Dr. Bob Wachter of UCSF. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more Forum after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We are surveying the current pandemic scene with Dr. Bob Wachter, uh, professor and chair of the Department of Medicine at UCSF, and Dr. Bonnie Maldonado, professor of pediatrics and an infectious uh, disease epidemiologist at the Stanford University School of Medicine. I want to bring in uh, Susan from Tiburon with an interesting question. Welcome to the show, Susan. Hi. Um, I My question is pretty simple. I'm wondering about the people who don't get COVID. I've been exposed on numerous occasions in close contact with family members. And it's not that I think I'll never get it. I'm just wondering what the thought is about people like me who seem to be able to dodge the bullet. 
Yeah, I'm really curious about this, too. I, I, I have run into a few people in my life who seem like they've been exposed so many times and yet ha- haven't come down with it. Is it just blind luck, Dr. Wachter? It's probably some combination of uh, your immune system, in, but things we don't understand, uh, and, yeah. and luck. Uh, I mean, it's important to say that the household attack rate, meaning that that if, if some a member of your household has COVID, uh, what are the chances that you're going to get it? And that number is probably 30 to 40 percent, maybe a little higher now with the more infectious uh, variants. So people sometimes believe, like, I must have some immunity superpower because my partner had it and I didn't get it. It's, that's just the way it goes. And there's a, there's a level of randomness that we don't understand, but there's also probably something about individual immune systems that, that make a difference. Uh, I, you know, I've been fairly careful, but my wife had it three months ago. I was uh, exposed to her for a full day before we knew that she had it, mm-hmm. and I managed to dodge the bullet. So I've, A, never been prouder of my immune system, but B, I assume most of that was luck, and if I had enough exposures like that, eventually I would, I would get it. Yeah. Hey, thanks for that uh, question, Susan. Uh, Bonnie Maldonado, we had a question from a school teacher, which was just, you know, advice about the fall and going back to school safely. And if things have changed at all from from last year or uh, particularly with these new, uh, well, particularly BA5, the new subvariant that's going to be part of our, our lives for the next few months. Well, let me just start off by saying that what's really changed is we have lots of vaccine options now for children. So I really want to emphasize that there are the FDA and the CDC just approved um, vaccines for everybody six months of age and older. That's very similar to what we say for the flu. And we know that the flu does not cause as many hospitalizations and deaths as COVID does. And we yet we really emphasize uh, that vaccine. So um, I, I think everyone should consider, uh, if not, uh, you know, support, or I would even make it a rule that classrooms should uh, really be enforcing, at least if not enforcing vaccination, at least tracking um masking and other mitigation in the classroom because the, we know that these vaccines can prevent maybe not prevent fully prevent infections but can prevent um you know serious complications um and uh the other issues is we as we heard before ba5 is very infectious we don't know what's going to happen in the fall we think there's a new variant now called ba2.75 that seems to be working its way across the world. And um, it does appear to be a little even more contagious. Um, we keep hearing that there's more and more contagious contagiousness, but it also actually has a number of more, more uh, of mutations in the pr- protein, the spike protein that attaches to human cells. So it could also have more immune evasion. So there will, I, I can't imagine there wouldn't be new variants coming along in the fall. Uh, so I do think we're going to have to face this virus, but uh, do what we said before. Just uh, make sure kids get our masks when they're in school. Um, make sure ventilation works in the classrooms. It, everybody now who is in school should be able to be vaccinated. And that is going to be really um, a, a great way to get kids back in, get them learning again. We know um, that there are studies showing that children stopped Neuro, neurologic and developmental milestones at the beginning of the pandemic. So mm. we have a lot of catching up to do and kids just need to go back. Yeah. Uh, 
We've got Richard who writes in. So many so many comments and calls for you two. Uh, Richard writes in to say, we took a European vacation and got COVID in Paris. The museums were packed. Very few people were wearing masks. The old-fashioned, low-air crowded galleries, especially in the basement of the Louvre, were really disconcerting. They've definitely given up on worrying about COVID in Europe. We had to spend five days in London until we thought it was safe for us to travel home. We had virtually no symptoms. We're very grateful that we were not severely impacted, but we're going to be more cautious on our next trip because it's everywhere. And the question I have for you, Dr. Walker, out of this is you travel somewhere and then you test positive away from your home. Um, What is the ethical thing to do in a circumstance like that, given that, let's say you might test positive for 10 days? Should you stay in that place for all 10 days or how would you deal with that situation? Yeah, that's very. I have to say that the idea I got in Paris, got stuck in London, sounds kind of romantic in a way. uh, Although I'm sure it was very unpleasant. Um, Yeah, it's it's a little bit of a tough call. You know, this this happened to my wife and I. uh, She tested positive in Palm Springs, and uh, we had to figure out whether we would get on an airplane and fly home, knowing that she was positive. She would obviously wear a good N95 during the flight or uh, or stay there or drive. We chose to drive 10 hours with both windows open, both of us wearing N95s. We thought it was the the ethically right thing to do. I'd say for the first five days, you know, getting on an airplane or a, or a crowded place when you know you're infectious is you're putting other people at risk and 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 uh, you would hope other people would be wearing masks, but that's one of the, you know, one of the, the risks now that that many people are not. Uh, after five days, the CDC says you can leave isolation. You may still be infectious, but this could happen, you know, on the on on the subway. So, I think after five days, it would be reasonable for someone to wear a really good N95 uh, and get themselves back to where they need to get to. But it's a it is a it is a tricky call. Yeah, I mean, an an expensive, a financially difficult call for for That's, people. Not I mean, to mention, you know, I, I had a friend who got caught in in Austin, Texas, for you know. 10 days unable to see her family and sick with COVID. Uh, Really tough situation. Um, Let's bring in Barbara in Lincoln. Welcome to the show. Hi, good morning. Um, I had a question. I'm actually scheduled to give my kids their first um, dose of the vaccine today. I have a one-year-old and a four-year-old. Um, and I was just wondering if we can talk a little bit about the recommended vaccine schedules for children, um, given that there's like a more infectious variant. Would it be advised to do it as complete the schedule as quickly as possible? Or would it be better for us to um, do like the extended eight weeks per dose? We're getting the Pfizer um, vaccine schedule. Dr. Maldonado? Yeah, it- is a little bit of a uh, navigation there because there are two different um, products. So there's the Pfizer vaccine and there's the Moderna vaccine available to everybody six months and older now. But the Pfizer vaccine and Moderna both have three different doses depending on how old you are. The Moderna vaccine is a 100 microgram dose given four weeks apart in two doses for people over um, 12 for, uh, uh, sorry, people over 17. And for people 12 to 17, there's a 50 microgram dose. And then for the younger children, there is a uh, 25 microgram dose. That's a six, under six months of age. Sorry, it's five, uh, six to 17 is the 50. 
And then 25 micrograms is the under six-year-old dose. So the dosage itself is different um, because of the reactions that younger children will have with higher amounts of vaccine uh, uh, for the older people. So that is two doses, uh, four weeks apart. And for people between 12, uh, 12 and older, especially young adult, uh, young uh, adult males and older teenage boys, um, it is uh, providers can consider giving the second dose at a later date, uh, uh, as far late late as eight weeks later, because of the potential risk, although very very low, of uh, heart inflammation or myocarditis, and that's just for the Moderna vaccine. Now for the Pfizer vaccine, um, it is a two dose schedule for adults and for older kids. Again, three three different uh, um, amounts. So for the older people, it's 30 micrograms. For the uh, five to 11 year olds, it's 10 micrograms per dose. And the, it's given two doses, three weeks apart. Now for the children under five, it's a three dose regimen. The, um, the three doses um, are at three micrograms, so quite a small dose. The higher doses were, were more likely to cause fevers in the younger children. So the three microgram dose is recommended. And that is given um, uh, at uh, uh, three week interval, at the three weeks in between the first two doses. And then you get another dose at eight weeks out. So yes, it is true that you won't get full protection until about a week after that third dose. Um, but um, the protection you get is very, very uh, strong in terms of neutralizing antibodies. Um, and so, and the, and so the Moderna uh, and the Pfizer are considered interchangeable. So if you're going to use, start with the Pfizer product and for some reason, the person wants to switch to the Moderna product later on, they're, uh, they're allowed to do that, but it really is a matter of what's available right now. What we're seeing operationally is for a lot of logistical and supply chain issues, the Pfizer vaccine is just a lot easier to get right now. And it's actually a very good vaccine. They're both very good. They provide really good protection. It may take longer to get protection with the Pfizer product though. So just to um, to make sure that that Barbara has the correct advice, what what would the recommended schedule be for for Pfizer? She's starting with Pfizer. She would go, What when, when would the next so- one come? Yeah, so she would get three doses. So the first dose would be um, three weeks later, and then there would be another dose um, eight weeks later. Got it. Okay. okay. Yeah. Um, thanks so much for that call, uh, Barbara, and thank you, Dr. Maldonado. I want to get to a question at the different other end of the age scale. Debbie in Oakland, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for taking my call. I have a 92-year-old mother who lives in a multi-tiered retirement community, Um, and for the past three months or so, all socializing activities, dining, et cetera, have been shut down because they have had some COVID cases, Um, though, you know, they've had about 20 or so uh, COVID cases out of about, I think, maybe 300 50, 400 residents. I'm not positive. It's, it's a lot. Um, there have been no deaths or hospitalizations from COVID during this time. But meanwhile, there are a ton of elderly people living there who are really, really lonely. And loneliness is a big killer of the elderly. And I'm wondering if there are any thoughts for changing the rules for COVID containment um, in 
you know, multi-level retirement communities in the near future. It's mm-hmm. an interesting question. Dr. Wachter? It's uh, ironic. I, I spoke last night at a, at a multi-level retirement community in San Francisco uh, to an audience of 100 people, all wearing masks, all being very careful. Uh, they've also seen a fair amount of COVID, although uh, similarly, I don't think many people have gotten very sick. Uh, but they all, the, 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 uh, the communal dining is still open. And the point I made is that, you know, life is short and we have to try to figure out what's the balance between the things that we do that give us pleasure and, and prevent isolation in settings like that uh, and the risk. And I, you know, I said, you are taking a risk, particularly with this virus so prevalent and it's tremendously, you know, there's a lot of virus in the air. Um, and, and so infectious when you all are, you know, if you're in a restaurant with 100 people, it's a near guarantee that someone there has COVID and, and feels fine. On the other hand, you then have to weigh the risk of, of isolation for what may be, you know, several months, who knows. And so I said, if it were me and I was running the place, I would not ban the communal dining, but I would do everything I could to make it as safe as possible. People wearing masks on their way in and on their way out and really focusing on ventilation. So, you know, what can you do to make that setting as safe as possible? Spacing tables a little further apart, um, again, masking in and out when you're not eating, have people wear a mask. You can't make it zero risk, but I do think it's important, sort of a parallel to the kids. There is a cost and a consequence of saying to people who are living that kind of setting, you know, you're not gonna see anyone other than you for several months and uh, we shouldn't minimize that. It's a very, very tough call. Mm. I mean, I think especially now that we know this is going to go on for for quite some time, if you only expect to live a few more years, that could be all those years, right? And I, I think it's sure. it's made it for some really tough situations for for families. Um, I would like to bring in uh, Lucia in Palo Alto with another question. Yes, thank you. I had COVID, and I recover sort of about one week and a half ago. I have only one booster and I feel really afraid. Do I have a booster right away or do I have to wait? That's number one. Mm-hmm. And uh, number second is that I have been reading that the second time, especially for seniors, could be very, very serious. Uh, you know, attack the lungs, the heart, etc., and it's much, much worse than the first time. And that's uh, so why I'm a little concerned about that. Hmm, that's a, a interesting question, Doctor Walker. Yeah, in terms of sort of the timing of the second booster, uh, you know, we've I think for months have been saying you can wait a few months, uh, in part because your infection was kind of the equivalent of a booster in terms of revving up your immune system, because of uh, uh, of this immune escape with BA five. I think I don't know if the formal recommendations changed, Bonnie. We'll probably know, but but I I would per- personally go ahead and get the second booster after a, waiting a period of time that might be maybe a month or so. I think we're doing a little hand-waving there. I don't think there's any absolute data to uh, uh, to inform that question, but I probably wouldn't wait the three months. I think that getting the second booster for an older person is, is a good thing to do, even if you've had a prior infection. In terms of whether, the re- whether another infection is more severe, less severe, or the same, uh, I don't think there's good data on that. You know, you could argue 
there, you would expect in some ways that it would be less severe uh, because your immunity is better because of the first infection. Uh, but uh, there was just a study that came out that looked at people who had recurrent infections that showed that the long-term consequences seemed to be greater in people who had recurrent infections. So I, to me, the bottom line is, you know, the old saw that you've had a first infection and now you're good to go and don't worry about it um, is no longer true. You should try continue to try to get uh, avoid getting reinfected. I think getting an, another boost is a good idea. And I don't think there's any evidence that the second infection is likely to be worse than the first infection, but I still think you would like to avoid it if you can. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I just mentioned that. Yeah, absolutely. Sure. So just re to recall why we said that when we were, uh, I was, I work with the CDC uh, ACIP committee on vaccine approvals. And the reason we, we debated uh, whether to, how long to wait after COVID infection back to vaccinate people. There were no data back, at, back in those days, back in December of 2020. But the reason we waited is not because of the significance of the vaccine on the person itself, but the fact that we didn't have enough vaccine at the time. Mm. So we were saying, wait at least 30 and you can wait up to 90 days because we thought there was at least three months of protection. That's probably not the case anymore because BA5 is so infectious. I would agree with Bob that I would get vaccinated. I Mostly what we say is wait. Again, there's a lot of hand waving. We wait, wait until you feel better from your infection and you can go ahead and get vaccinated generally 30 days or more out. And yes, that there are data. It's not a, a it's a preprint, so it hasn't been published in a peer review, but there are over um, a quarter of a million people studied in a VA study in the US looking at reinfections and whether you were vaccinated or not, reinfections had, uh, reinfections caused twice as much mortality uh, 20 times more um, complications and twice as much hospitalization. Okay. That, uh, so, um, Dr. Maldonado, I hate to cut you off. That's yeah. extremely interesting. We're running out of time. Uh, we've been joined by Dr. Maldonado from the Stanford University School of Medicine and Dr. Bob Wachter from the Department of Medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. Thank you for your calls. I'm Alexis Madrigal. This is Forum. Stay tuned for another hour ahead. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising-Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Did you ever wonder what it's like to live alone, hidden in the woods, not speaking to a single soul for 30 years? Or wander the desert, uncover a hidden well, and dive to the bottom of the deepest water hole for 2,000 miles? 
The Snap Judgment Podcast takes you there with amazing stories told by the people who live them with an original soundscape that drops you directly into their shoes. Snap Judgment. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.